Kia ora and welcome to the Marlborough Book Festival podcast, the place where you can hear writers talk about their work, their lives and the inspiration behind their writing. I'm Claudia, a member of the committee, and today I'm delighted to be introducing the fantastic John McChrystal, speaking to Mike White. John gives us insight into his new book, Worst Things Happen at Sea, Tales of Nautical Mishap, Misery and Mystery from New Zealand and around the world. Covering the tragic, the heroic and the inexplicable, John will also discuss one of our greatest maritime mysteries, the sinking of the Mikhail Lermitov in the Marlborough Sounds. Please enjoy John McChrystal speaking to Mike White. We had a tremendous session on yesterday morning, um, and John will be available to sign those uh, afterwards up the other end of the foyer. Um, thanks to the Marlborough Book Festival for organising this wonderful event and this session. Thanks to Dog Point Wines, um, uh, tremendous supporters. Thanks, Marg, uh, whose wine I hope some of you are enjoying this morning. And thanks again to you, the audience, for supporting this event and this session as well. It's great to see you all. John McChrystal's a, a Wellington writer and author who's written and ghostwritten over 50 books on subjects ranging from social history to sport, from cars to economics. He's written a lot with Gareth Morgan, and he's actually at the moment just finishing the biography of Joe Morgan, Gareth Morgan's wife. Um, he's... His most recent book, Singing the Trail, is, is out uh, for people to see. But the book we're talking about today comes out in September, as they say. It's called Shipwrecks, Worst Things Happen at Sea, Tales of Nautical Mishap, Misery and Mystery from New Zealand and Around the World. And we're lucky to be getting a sneak preview of it this morning. So ladies and gentlemen, can you please join me in, in welcoming John to Marlborough and the Festival. <laughs> John, Thank just, you, Mike, and we, thanks for coming, everyone. Yeah, we're just going to set the scene with a little uh, reading from the introduction to this book. Sure, thank you. The first piece of writing I ever did about shipwrecks was one of the first things I ever wrote. It was a story I did when I was nine or ten years old, and it was about the wreck of some nameless ship on a rocky coast in a storm. Everyone died, because that's how I rolled. My teacher thought it was quite good. She browbeat me into reading it in front of our final school assembly for the year, and as I did so, my classmates writhed around the stage in oilskins under a flickering light cast by a cardboard lighthouse. In 2008, through a convoluted series of associations, I found myself aboard a vessel bound for Antarctica via the subantarctic islands, and it turned out that I'd shipped with some of the legends of New Zealand wreck diving. En route, they shared their stories about searching for the General Grant, and the time they actually believed they'd found her, until a meticulous salvage of the wreck site they'd discovered revealed that this was a different ship altogether. On that voyage, I got to stand among the stranded remains of the Grafton, and to look out at the view that her castaway crew scanned every day for the better part of 20 months for any sight of rescue. I dived the very few under underwater remains of the same vessel, 20 metres off the beach, and I got to stand in the little graveyard at Port Ross, where a sailor from the General Grant and the second mate of the Invercald are buried. And I actually got to dive on a site in the Auckland Islands that the expedition leader, Bill Day, had identified as, as worthy of investigation in his own tireless search for the General Grant and her treasure. 
I didn't find her. I didn't see anything much except huge rocks, huge limpets, tiny power, and a single fish about the size of my pinky finger. But for every second that I was underwater, I was conscious that I was in the privileged position of living what had always seemed an impossible dream. Upon my return from that voyage, I set about trying to identify the ship that Bill and his team had found. As I pondered 150-year-old newspaper stories and searched faded entries in British and Canadian shipping registries, I realised that what drew me to shipwrecks wasn't the allure of sunken treasure at all. It was the stories that adhere to them, like barnacles. When eventually I'd arrived at a reasonable degree of certainty over the identity of Bill's unknown wreck and sat down to tell her story, I felt the same tingle I'd felt as a 10-year-old, dooming my imaginary vessel. She was, I believe, the rifleman, an English-flagged merchantman wrecked in 1833 en route from Hobart to London. There were no survivors of the 19 souls aboard. It turns out that that's how history rolls as well. Thanks, John. I love that line in in that passage there that you say that the stories are ones that adhere uh, like barnacles. I mean, was that the criteria that when you were looking at the thousands of shipwrecks that you could have possibly written about, was that the criteria for choosing ones that have ended up in the book? Yeah, so th- this book, the genesis of the, this book, I guess, was a radio show I was doing with Graham Hill on uh, Radio Live. And uh, we needed stuff that people who were brave or insomnia- insomniac enough to be listening at 11.30 at night would be gripped by uh, and probably spend a little while after it had finished lying awake uh, Dreading falling asleep and dreaming that they're in the situations we've described. <laughs> so, yeah, we were looking for those powerful stories. And, of course, there are millions of them. As many, many ships as have sunk, there, there's a story, really. Uh, but, yeah, in the end, I, I guess it's a personal selection of some of my favourite stories. Not just from New Zealand uh, and not just from overseas, because I think that some of the stories adhering to New Zealand shipwrecks are any, every bit as good uh, from whatever perspective you interrogate them as overseas stories. So why are we so fascinated by shipwrecks? You know, because it's it's not like most of us are ever going to experience a shipwreck. It's yeah, Exactly. It's not like, you know, we've all got our story of when we were shipwrecked. So what is it that attracts us to them? So you, as a seasoned journalist, would know the old, uh, the old saw, if it bleeds, it leads. There's a fascination with disaster because... There's a part of us, I guess, that ev- evolution has equipped us to be this way, but there's a part of us that fears the worst. And we, we've also got this quality called empathy. And when we read about or think about other people experiencing the worst, there's a little thrill, uh, I suppose. And maybe it's a little dash of survivor guilt, but th- there's just something that enjoys tales of misery in which we were not involved. Uh, and and yeah, so so there's that, and there's also there's that question that I think we ask ourselves: What the heck would I have done in that situation? And so often these shipwrecks um, throw up those stories. It's like throwing human nature as a white light into a prism and seeing the ways it splits. Yeah. Uh, the the hero, the absolute villain and cad, uh, and everything in between. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you, you write in the book, in the end, the most fascinating shipwrecks are the ones where people have been 
brought by extraordinary circumstance to confront the most ordinary truth of them all. We all must die. And that's often the end, unfortunately, in shipwrecks, isn't it? But then a lot of the, the fabulous tales also include survivors. But a lot of them are pretty grim, aren't they? Yeah, that, that there's, for, for every survivor's tale, there's going to be lots of tales that will never be told because there was no one left to, uh, to bring those stories to us. We can infer some of those stories, that, that wreck I mentioned, the rifleman. All 19 people died there. Uh, the way the ship was disposed um, and the part of the coast on which it was wrecked for me, suggests that people ought to have been able to have got ashore. And having got ashore, they perished there. So we don't know the story, but we can imagine the story. But yes, it's the survivors who bring us, bring us the stories. And there's so much tragedy and grimness around them. And the choices that often people must have had to make as they're facing this terrible moment, this terrible, unexpected kind of event... Them, whether to stand on, a, on, on the deck of a listing ship or, or leap into a tiny lifeboat in treacherous seas, I mean, they're beyond belief, really, and you have to make that choice in an instant, don't you? Yeah, yeah. And um, awful choices as well. Uh, there's a, 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 in the wreck of the General Grant, if I'm not jumping the gun here too much, uh, one of the able seamen was put aboard a boat with a job to do uh, before they made an attempt to evacuate the survivors. Uh, but then the loss of the ship accelerated and uh, he had to make a choice. Do I stay aboard the boat where I'm comparatively safe or do I go back for my wife and my two daughters standing on the deck there? So he turned around and faced the other way until the ship had gone, taking his wife and daughters with them. Uh, by contrast, there were others who saved other people. Uh, there was the, the priest who was aboard who just knelt on the deck with others whom he knew to be doomed like himself and they just prayed, waited for the end. Uh, the fortitude and then the, just the abject cowardice. Where would you be and, on that scale? And that's it. Yeah. It can bring out the bestness or the worstness, heroism or cowardice. Tell us about the Birkenhead because this is a, um, uh, one of, which has gone down in history really as, as a great moment of heroism in some respects. Yes, it has. Um, the Birkenhead's one of my favourite stories. Uh, I apologise that some of these slides have uh, watermarks all over them. Uh, I was forced to, in illustrating the book to go to some of the stock libraries and uh, they charge through the nose for these images and you only have brief access to them. So when I came back to illustrate this talk, uh, I only had low-resolution res watermarked things. So there's an apology. So Elemy is not depictions of the souls of the departed or anything like that. It's, <laughs> an, it's, a, it's a rapacious stock library. Uh, yeah, so the Birkenhead um, was on her way to deliver soldiers to uh, one of a bunch of wars that the, the Brits were fighting with um, the Zolsa people in South Africa. Uh, and she was steaming along the coast, being a paddle wheel steamer, when she struck a rock. Uh, it was in that era before 1912, uh, the date itself will ring bells with some of you, uh, but before that the idea of lifeboats was that when your ship was sinking you used the lifeboats to ferry people to safety, which would arrive pretty shortly after your unfortunate accident. Uh, so often it wasn't the way and lifeboat capacity was just not anything like adequate to carry the full ship's complement to safety. That was immediately obvious to the, to the army commander when he came on deck. 
And so he mustered his men on the after deck and he told them to stand at attention. And for the first time in maritime history, the call women and children first was given. So the women and children were put in the boats uh, and everyone else was basically kept there at attention. The boats were lowered away. Who knows, maybe some of those soldiers stood there so calmly because they thought that their turn would come and after the women and children were put aboard, that was it. Everyone would get their chance. There weren't any more boats. Uh, so according to one of the survivors, because there were quite a few survivors, uh, no military embarkation had ever been done in such silence and in such order as they stood on the deck and waited their, their, their fate. Uh, and, yeah, quite an extraordinary thing. And, of course, that, that was just gold for the British Empire. Who that's, that's how a British soldier, any British person, was meant to behave in the face of adversity. Stiffen that upper lip, old boy, and go down with your ship. Yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly. I mean, you must have, have thought over the years that you've looked at shipwrecks and, and been fascinated by them, you must have questioned yourself, how would I respond? Would I be the women and children first or would I be get out of my way, you know, panic or calm? What do you reckon? I don't know. I don't know. Um, I would like to think that I'd be the person who would be sitting in the lifeboat about to go when some, when, when a last person would stagger onto the deck and I'd say, here, old boy, have my place, <laughs> which happens so often. Um, and then go and stand on the deck and wave cheerily as, uh, as they were lowered away and my own doom approached. That's me. That, that would definitely be me. Yeah. <laughs> but I just don't know. There, I, there have been moments in my life where my, my moral character has been tested and found sadly, sadly wanting. And I do fear that in, in one of these situations, uh, I just, I would be clawing my way past weeping children to get at the lifeboat. So you mentioned, and this is a general grant on the Auckland Islands, you know, so, uh, south of New Zealand. Um, and you mentioned before, Nikki Allen, wasn't it, who yes. had that choice of sailing off in the safety of the lifeboat or going back to rescue his wife and children, and he chose the former. And he was pilloried, though, for that, because word got out about that, wasn't yeah. it, and he became a villain. Yeah, yeah, so it, they, the other survivors didn't name him, but it was pretty obvious to anyone uh, who looked at the list of survivors, looked at the list of people who didn't survive, uh, how it had rolled. So um, he did, once he returned to, to civilization as, as one of the, the, the 10 out of 83 who survived, uh, he was not a popular man. Yeah. And, and history will cast you in a certain light. And you might remember the Costa Concordia, um, which a remarkable story in itself, uh, and the, tell us about the captain of this ship and how he's remembered and where he is right now. Yes. So I don't actually know where he is right now. Oh, he's, he's languishing in, in a jail, prison. He is he? still yeah. still languishing yeah. in the jail. Uh, and his name was um, Francesco, I think. Francesco Chitino. I think most people just know him by Chitino because uh, that was the name that was bandied about on the Coast Guard airwaves. As the ship, um, it became plain that his, his ship was in trouble and uh, it was going to sink. And that there was the risk, given that most of the people aboard were elderly, that some of them would die. Uh, when they tried to find out where the captain was, he, after a while, came on the airwaves and said, I am here. I am directing the rescue from ashore. <laughs> and, 
he was the only one ashore at that stage, apart from the people who'd, who'd rowed him there. And he'd basically been seen running along the, 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 uh, the capsizing ship to, to get to, to the first boat to leave. Uh, and yes, the, it, it's one of the great moments on radio uh, where the Coast Guard guy's going, Shetino, where are you, Shetino? I cannot believe this, Shetino. Get back aboard that fucking ship, Shetino. <laughs> and, and as Mike was saying just before the session, the very next day there were T-shirts printed with, get back aboard the fucking ship, Shetino. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I mean. So, so this ship came to grief because he was sitting... Uh, uh, in the, the plush dining room with his Moldovan mistress whining and dining here before the pièce de résistance, or maybe the prelude to the pièce de résistance of the evening, uh, where he took, took her onto the bridge, which was not allowed, so that he, she could see just how close to that tiny rocky island he was going to sail his big ship, and then I presume they'd retire to his cabin, um, <laughs> and where she would contemplate true grandeur, uh, but instead, <laughs> as soon as he arrived, he went, oh, oh my God, uh, we're closer to the island. And they said, well, that's what you... And he said, I'll turn the ship around and then bang. And the rest was after that history. Took a while to sink, but um, yes, he was... Uh, I think he knew his number was up at that moment. And, yeah. and I think, don't you say he got 16 years? He, he was eventually held responsible and got about 16 years. So he's still in Pokey somewhere in, in Italy, presumably. Yes, yes. Yeah. yes. I, I can't remember where, but... Um, Yes, he's, he's still, yeah. Okay, so terrible time. mistakes, terrible uh, lapses of judgment. Um, often, though, when, when uh, shipwrecks ha- happen suddenly, uh, something unexpected happens, a fraction of calmness could have helped things immeasurably. And this is the um, crew of a small yacht called the Minionette. Um, when they abandoned the yacht which was sinking, all they grabbed were two tins of turnips. I mean, it was misfortune upon misfortune, really, wasn't it? <laughs> and it led to a terrible end, unfortunately. Um, once the turnips were gone, there weren't many options, were there? No, and um, of course, the lifeboat with a few people cast adrift in it is a test case for moral philosophy. How do you decide uh, what happens next when all the food is gone? And there are several examples in the book of where people have had to make these choices. And this is actually, um, it's a lawyer's favourite shipwreck because it's the test case for a, a legal principle called necessity. What do you do when, in order to save your life, you must take the life of another? Uh, or others must die in order, in order that you should live? Uh, there was the Birkenhead answer to that. Well, if you're a Brit, you stand there and you let other people uh, be saved. Uh, these were Brits, um, and many British people prior to that, in fact, so many that it had been becoming a bit of a headache for the Royal Navy, that people didn't seem to be actually in that dire a strait before they'd start drawing lots and killing each other and eating each other. So they needed something they could um, really clarify this doctrine of necessity about. And luckily, these poor buggers came ashore saying, um, oh, yeah, there was the matter of eating um, Richard Parker. And uh, everyone went, what? What? And, uh, of course, they they were tried, and a prosecution... It was not really ever properly put to a jury because it was felt that no jury would convict them. So through all kinds of legal chicanery, a conviction for murder uh, was, was secured. And these poor buggers just didn't survive as whole people either. 
Uh, one of them became an alcoholic and died pretty quickly. Another one died of the bubonic plague in Sydney, uh, but a very short time later, having fled England because everywhere he went, uh, yeah, people used to look at him sideways and lock away their cutlery. Uh, and, and yet another one actually thought, oh, well, if you can't beat them, join them, and hired himself out as an exhibit in a touring freak show. Oh, so, but yeah. what surprised me was that you would think that they would be condemned by the public for the most heinous action of killing and eating a crew member. But actually, during the trial, public support was pretty much with them. Yeah. And the brother of uh, the, the main item on the menu, um, <laughs> who was the, the youngest of the crew, and that was a bit of, a, bit of an aggregating, uh, aggravating feature. He was the youngest. Uh, it was also the reason they chose him. The others had dependents. Uh, other people depended on them and their incomes for their survival, really. Uh, Richard Parker was a 19-year-old. He had no independent on him. Um, if anyone's life had to be, be taken, it seemed the greater good pointed in his direction. Uh, so that was him. But in the trial, Daniel Parker, his slightly older brother, walked up to both men who were standing in the dock, shook their hands and said, I would have done the same thing. It's taste, tasty, my, my brother. But I, I shouldn't laugh about cannibalism as much as I do, but um, <laughs> like Monty Python, and maybe because of them, I, I just find the whole subject... Highly amusing, yeah. <laughs> Until you're in a lifeboat that's with right, uh, that's three right. angry yeah. people. Oh, well, yeah. I've got a gammy leg, so I should yeah. be all right. So, you, yeah. uh, just to say that this is a legitimate uh, yeah. injury. It's not John uh, <laughs> trying to do a nautical peg leg impression. Yes. It, it is, it's a hockey accident. Yeah, so. if, I, if I had any integrity, I would have had it amputated below the knee and a, and a wooden spike put there. In it. <laughs> so, yeah. so there are some great stories of, of people responding in the best way possible, though, in shipwrecks. And one of those would be after the Grafton was wrecked on the Auckland Islands, um, Francois Reynaud. Tell us a bit about him and about how he essentially, when you've got your mic back on, uh, essentially how he responded and how he saved or made life so much more bearable for the for the other shipwreck victims of the Grafton. Yep. So not a big ship and uh, not on a dramatic mission. She'd failed in her attempts to find copper on Campbell Island. She'd gone to Auckland Island so they could knock a few seals on the head and recoup their expenses. Uh, they got driven ashore in Carnley Harbour, which is at the south of Auckland Island, uh, and wrecked. Uh, Francois Reynal, who is a Frenchman, gold miner, and as it turned out, Loire de DIY, <laughs> uh, the king of DIY, um, he was lying gravely ill in his bunk when they were driven ashore. But rather than abandon him, they saved him. And in doing so, they saved themselves. Uh, when they got ashore, he got better. Uh, and then things were in the balance because their captain, Thomas Musgrave, was basically losing it. Uh, he had a wife and children, and he was distraught, and he just couldn't see any way out of their, their, their problem. They had very few supplies, a rifle, they had access to the wreck, which was important. But Raynal was the man. Um, over the course of the next 18 to 20 months when they were stuck there, he performed such feats as inventing a way to make cement so that they could build a chimney. Uh, he invented soap because they're all getting a bit stinky. Uh, he, he, uh, their boots were falling apart. One of them had managed to get ashore without his boots. He invented a way of tanning seal skin to make leather uh, using rata juice and uh, lye from, from uh, soaking ashes. Uh, 
he, when they decided that no one was going to come and save them, he decided that they needed to modify, they needed to build a ship. So he thought to build a ship, we need tools. We haven't got any of those, so I'll just make them. Uh, so he built a forge, which required him to build bellows. Uh, he had to f work out a way of making charcoal. Uh, and he successfully built a forge in which they could work from which they could work steel. The only thing he couldn't do, as it turned out, the only thing that prevented him building a vessel, a new vessel out of the Grafton, was he couldn't build an auger bit. He could twist the metal, but he couldn't temper the bit. So every time he tried boring holes in the extremely hard timber of which the Grafton was built, it kept snapping. And so for the first time, I think, in his entire life, he just said, Gallic shrug, I cannot do this. Uh, so they built, they modified their existing boat, which was a dinghy, and they sailed it from Auckland Island to Stewart Island and uh, alerted uh, a European resident there who went back and rescued the two men they'd left behind. Everyone survived. Uh, partly because of all that DIY uh, genius, but also because Reynald was shrewd enough to know that without a leader, without team unity, they weren't going to make it. And so what he did is he said that because everyone was going, oh, Musgrave, you're a, you're a, you're a useless bastard captain. Um, and uh, Reynald said, well, there's only one way to solve this. Uh, we must elect our leader. Um, I vote for Thomas Musgrave. Everyone else did the same. After that, no questions about leadership. And Musgrave felt affirmed. He had a purpose. Uh, these chaps were depending on him. He went into periods of black depression, but he got through them. And Reynald eventually wrote a book about his, his uh, experiences. Yes. You can still get that, can't yes, you? Yes, you can. Um, it's been in print pretty much ever since. Uh, it was published originally in France, but uh, there, are, there are French, uh, sorry, there are English language editions of it. And um, if you need a book on, on the subject of the Grafton, then the very best one is by uh, a colleague and friend of mine, Joan Druitt. Uh, it's called The Island of the Lost, and it's a compare and contrast exercise between the Grafton wrecked in 1864 at the south end of Auckland Island and the Invercald wrecked in 1864 on the north end of Auckland Island. Both groups were there at the same time. Neither one knew the other was there. Uh, the Grafton, as we've just mentioned, a copybook example of how you survive a shipwreck. The Invercald, not so much. Uh, they fell a bit, fell to bits and they resorted to cannibalism. They... Uh, they were useless, and three of them survived out of a crew of 22-odd. Um, but it needn't have been that way. They, they were on the more hospitable end of the island. And then when we talk shipwrecks, there's treasure. And <laughs> exactly. And, and, you know, that's lured many people to search for it and often to lose their lives in that search. Um, this is the Alingamite. Uh, this is one that was dived by, do people remember Kelly Tarleton or, or have heard, well, Kelly Tarleton, you know, we know the uh, aquarium up in Auckland, named after the aforementioned Kelly Tarleton, who was a, a famous treasure hunter. Tell us how he got the name Jelly Kelly. Jelly Kelly, yeah. So, so the Alingamite uh, smacked into the Three Kings north of, uh, uh, north of New Zealand. Fairly typical story, it was in fog, the captain was nervous, uh, cliffs came out of the fog, nothing to be done. Uh, they struck and they sank pretty quickly. Uh, there was loss of life. Um, uh, 38 died, but it could have been so much worse. There were 136 aboard. Uh, she had 52 boxes of gold sovereigns aboard, and that 
Oh, that little fact obviously was never going to be um, just ignored. So Kelly Tarleton was a pioneer of uh, underwater exploration in New Zealand. Uh, he made a lot of his own gear, read about aqualungs and thought, oh, that'd be useful. Couldn't buy one, so we made one. Um, he was an extraordinary fellow. And uh, if it, yeah, speaking of kings of DIY, that, that was Kelly. And um, in 1965, so Jacques Cousteau was make, making himself famous as an uh, underwater explorer around the world at that stage, the inventor of the aqualung. Kelly Tarleton, a couple of years later, uh, was sailing off to the Three Kings with a few mates uh, to have a look for those 52 boxes of gold. Now, one thing that happens when ships are wrecked is they get pounded bits on the bottom. They don't just sit there nicely intact uh, with uh, the door to the, the strong room, lazily whap, uh, flapping to and fro in the, in the current uh, with the boxes of gold twinkling inside. Everything is mashed and then it settles into the seabed. Gold is heavier than everything else, so it settles right to the bottom and won't stop until it reaches bedrock. Uh, on top of that, you get all sorts of stuff. And in the case of ships like the Alingamite, mostly iron. That forms what's called concretions because it rusts and it incorporates everything around it, which is mostly sand and rock. So basically, the gold sits on the bottom and then is sealed there with um, concretions. Along comes Kelly Tarleton contemplating this. Uh, they were diving at a dangerous depth at that stage and using only crowbars. Uh, he worked out that something more forceful was needed. And luckily, Kelly was really good with gelignite. So <laughs> he was soon nicknamed Jelly Kelly because he'd go down, set a few charges, come up, everyone would go like this. And kaboom. <laughs> <laughs> and then they'd go down and they'd sift through the debris and the dead fish and the, the, the rocks and the weed to find the gold. He was incredibly uh, successful in that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, look, we, the General Grant is another one which has forever uh, attracted people. There have been 30 expeditions to try and find the gold of the General Grant in the Auckland Islands. Why have they all failed? Yes. Good question. Um, this is a pretty good representation, I think, of the General Grant's situation after she first struck. Uh, she's in a cave, um, and uh, her foremast has already been snapped off just above uh, the first set of spreaders. Uh, what happened is she fouled overhanging rock uh, as she was being just gently washed against the cliffs by comparatively, for that part of the world, small waves. And... Uh, a combination of the masts being hammered against their own steps and uh, the fact that she was also striking a rocky projection on, with her starboard side meant that she sprung a leak. And so just as dawn arrived, they'd hung tough, they'd stayed with the ship until they had enough light to abandon safely. But sadly, so often the way there, as soon as the sun comes up, the wind comes up and it came up from a, a bad quarter and uh, everything accelerated and she sank very quickly. Uh, she's in a cave Big cave, swallowed a ship, must be easy to find, right? It's only 30-odd nautical miles along the coast of the Auckland Islands, the west coast of the Aucklands. Just look for the cave. Um, I've been there, and I've seen a small part of that coast, and it's just riddled with caves. And the scale of things is almost impossible to judge. Uh, you can be looking at a tiny cave at the foot of these cliffs, uh, and then you motor in towards them, and by the time you're there at the cave, it is a huge affair, and the cliffs are lost in the cloud. Uh, so the way traditionally people have gone looking for the ship there is they found a likely site and dived it, failed to find the ship, 
And so then they've just what they call swim the coast. They've swum along the coast at every likely, likely site they can find. It's what Kelly Tarleton did. Uh, it's what Bill Day and Malcolm Blair did. It's what Bill has done twice since. Uh, it's what I did. We were there. That's what we did. Uh, but there was never any chance because we were in the wrong place. I believe that everyone is looking in the wrong place. You will never find a, um, a shipwreck researcher better than Kelly Tarleton. He identified a certain spot based on the survivors' reports. Not a spot, but a stretch of the coast he called the area of high, high probability. He was certain that the ship ought to lie in there. And so that's where he concentrated his efforts. He died before he could really make a decent fist of exploring. Um, but others who went back reached the same conclusions and started there. Uh, it's not there, so it's in a different place. But, but is, are, we, are we basing these uh, guesses as to where it is on the wrong information? Because what fascinated me was that some of the few survivors that spent time on the Auckland Islands after the wreck were eventually rescued. First thing they do when they get a chance is hightail it back to the Auckland Islands to try and get their hands on the gold that was there. And, of course, they're not going to say accurately where the shipwreck happened in case they can't get it but someone else follows along behind them. So maybe they were laying a false trail. That's one possibility. Uh, and the less the ship shows up, the more you have to suppose that they were throwing people off the scent. Uh, that's one possible explanation for the, the unreliability of the, inf the information. The other is that they were wrecked in pitch darkness. They got away only just with their lives uh, in half, half dark. Uh, they were all shocked. They'd just seen 70-odd people drown in front of their eyes. Uh, they were on one of the most inhospitable coasts on Earth, and the immediate task was survival, not going, that landmark there lines up with that landmark there, and there'll be the treasure. Mm. Right, I'll be back presently. Uh, no, they had no time for anything like that. Um, this is a map of where the Auckland Islands are. And the reason so many ships got wrecked there is because to go from Australia, which people were doing, back to the UK, you drop down to pick up the westerly winds that whip around the bottom of the globe. Uh, so it's like a super highway. And the distance is shorter because you're going around the bottom of the globe. Uh, but unfortunately, going down there, you are screened out, if you're, if you're unlucky, by the Auckland Islands. Uh, and if you show the next map there, Mike, uh, those are all shipwrecks on the west coast of the the Auckland Island. The Grafton's there tucked away inland, uh, in an inland, in an inlet, I'm trying to say. Um, so she's a bit of an anomaly. A couple of the ones up north are anomalies as well. One of the ones up north is somewhere actually there on the west coast, uh, the Murray Ellis. But the others, you can see, have all sailed into danger and been un unable to extricate themselves. The General Grant is second from the bottom as you're going up the coast there. That's where Kelly thought she was. Uh, the rifleman is number one. Uh, it's right in the middle of the coast. Uh, you can see why Bill Day thought that's it. That's a General Grant. Wooden ship in a cave, in a cove, in the right place. And they found gold. Why would that not be um, the General Grant? It wasn't. So she's there somewhere, Mike. Yep. And you're going to keep looking? Well, I am slightly breaching confidence here, but there is an expedition going down this summer. And if they don't find it, I think the chances of the ship being found diminish that's very Bill steeply. That's Bill Day, is it, again? You, oh, is that someone that say. you might know, uh, I John? Yeah. I can't say. I Are can't you on say board? who it is. I'm not on board, yeah. Would He's, you dearly love to be? I, I indicated to the leader of this expedition that I probably wouldn't stop it 
being a male prostitute if that got me aboard. So, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, think, that, I think the, he was horrified and crossed me off the list at that this, point. So. <laughs> this is just, a, 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 you know, we talked about the inventiveness of people. These are a couple of the survivors of General Grant, the, the, um, the jewels. And these are the clothes that they made out of sealskin, isn't it? And they, they kind of toured around doing talks about it afterwards, wearing these clothes. Yeah, so they got back to New Zealand. Uh, They hadn't sailed from New Zealand, so the New Zealand government didn't want to pay them uh, or compensate them. The Australian government uh, pointed out that it was an American ship, uh, so they didn't want to pay for them. So they did pay for their fares back to Melbourne, where most of them had come from, uh, and they had to basically shift for themselves. So for Joseph Jewell and his wife, Mary Ann, the sole female survivor, what a story she could tell, mm. um, they toured around, as you say, halls, um, wearing this, the sealskin clothes they'd made with albatross needles and thread picked from uh, canvas and um, uh, just told their story. Uh, unfortunately, no, so far as I'm aware, record has survived of anything they said uh, but Marianne was, um, was the toast of Melbourne society for a little while. Uh, not bad for an illiterate bricklayer's daughter. Now, we, we talked about um, treasure and how alluring it is. The Ventnor, perhaps, puts a different perspective on things as to whether we should be investigating these wrecks or whether we should be leaving them alone as undisturbed. Just briefly tell us about the Ventnor and why this issue is raised here. Yeah, so so the Ventnor is the touchstone really uh, for the issues surrounding happy amateurs such as myself and Kelly Tarleton and others who would dearly love to go and find shipwrecks and, well, let's face it, treasure. (laughs) You have to meddle with a shipwreck in order to recover artefacts from them. And of course, for the last 50 odd years, Since the invention of uh, the kind of gear that you could use um, easily, uh, buy and use as as an amateur, that's what people have been doing. And I've got friends whose properties are festooned with anchors and portholes and you walk inside and they've got a display table with all this treasure laid out and it's bloody magnificent, you get so jealous. But um, I feel a bit queasy about it because there's no other form of archaeology really, where you can just go and pilfer stuff, or not since Victorian times anyway. Um, So that's now been formalised into law. Uh, Any ship that was wrecked before 1900 is now under the purview of the Historic Places Trust, and you cannot touch them without a qualified archaeologist and a permit. Uh, My friend who is sailing south for the Aucklands this summer has all of those permissions. Uh, He owns the salvage rights. Um, but, yeah, rare instance. Most shipwrecks just cannot be touched. Now, the Ventnor became an issue because she was sunk after 1900, and therefore there is nothing protecting her in that legislation. Uh, the trouble is she, was, she carried a very unusual cargo. She was carrying the remains of Chinese gold miners back to, their, uh, back to China, where they could be buried and uh, basically set their souls free uh, according to uh, uh, the religious principle involved. Otherwise, there'd be hungry ghosts wandering around waiting for someone to uh, repatriate their remains with, to their, their ancestral land. So the Ventnor was found, and it was found by uh, another friend of mine who uses a remote-operated vehicle, which you can put down and steer around like a drone, but it's tethered. 
uh, and it takes films and it uh, lights up the scene and it can, in limited cases, grab stuff. So they found the Ventnor and uh, they set about getting people who had the necessary expertise to dive her because she's at uh, a very dangerous depth for recreational divers, requires specialist equipment. Uh, word got out, and, and also they contacted the Tangata Whenua, who uh, actually welcomed the survivors ashore when they came ashore, uh, and also welcomed the corpses of those who had died ashore and gave them a decent burial in their own urupa. So basically said, you are ours and you're under our protection, you are, you are us. And um, so they, the, the divers contacted the Tangata Whenua and said, we'd like you to come out and, and lift the tapu over this site so that we can dive, uh, which was done. And they dived and then they got in a shitstorm of trouble for going down to what wasn't a protected wreck, but that was by special decree made a protected wreck. And they were ordered that uh, they must not interfere with this wreck again. Uh, there was some suggestion that some of the video footage they shot showed human remains. I've seen the footage, I can't see the human remains. Uh, but it became a big argument, and we've had this argument as well. The only people who are really equipped to dive these sites, go to Heritage New Zealand, fling open the door, you're not going to see a whole lot of diving gear lying around. They just don't do it. So it's the amateurs who are, who are equipped to do this stuff. And with a proper partnership between Heritage New Zealand and other agencies... And these incredibly skilled amateurs, and given the equipment to laser map things, which some of them own anyway, uh, we could be recording the, these artefacts before they disappear, which is what's happening. Uh, but, yeah, the Ventnor has cre created a big rift between these two camps, really, which I think is most regrettable. Yeah. Um, we're going to have to skip ahead because we're running out of time. Um, but I did want to touch on something that most people in, in living memory will, um, them or, or the generation before them will remember, the Wahine in Wellington. One of the things, I mean, we lost how many, 50, 51 uh, initially, but yeah. yeah. Um, one of the things that you mentioned was that the, the toll from the Wahine could have been extraordinarily worse uh, if, if the... Um, if the if the Wahine had washed up a little bit earlier in Breaker Bay, essentially, and the loss of life could have been quite horrendous. Is that correct? Yeah, that is. Uh, so she had struck Barrett's Reef at the entrance to Wellington Harbour in a horrendous storm. She was actually trying to turn around and head back, back out into the strait because she'd lost her radar and was effectively blind. Uh, and the captain knew she was in trouble, but he figured, get sea room, go out to sea, nothing, nothing bad will happen. But turning around was a questionable um, decision because it's very narrow, as everyone who's been through uh, the Wellington Harbour entrance will know. And the wind was blowing from the east, uh, so he presented the entire broadside of the, the ship to, uh, to the wind and became a sailing vessel uh, for long enough to be dragged over Barrett's Reef. Uh, she was disabled by that, and then she was at the mercy of the wind, and she got blown back into the harbour. She should really have gone ashore uh, uh, before that, but one of her anchors managed to foul, foul the bottom, and that held her for just long enough for the weather to abate a little bit before she drifted further. Had she gone ashore there, I don't know that anyone would have got off. Uh, there would have been no prospect of getting, uh, getting any, anyone to her, and it would have just been how lucky you were in, in getting ashore around Breaker Bay uh, in massive seas. Yeah. Uh, 
It's a, it's a beach, but it's a stony beach and uh, uh, huge waves. Yeah, and we saw what happened to the other victims that were swept across the harbour right. to Eastbourne, and, and many of them died coming ashore there. Yeah, it's some of the most harrowing stories uh, from the Wahine were people who, as you say, were washed across to Eastbourne. And uh, in some cases, people who were going to rescue them, they'd, they'd come across a beach that was just littered with corpses. And they'd see someone in the waves who would be washed in. Um, in one case, reached out, can't remember if they touched the hand or nearly touched mm-hmm. the hand of the person, and then the wave sucked them back, and then the next wave dumped them back, they're dead. So that close to being saved. Uh, and so many people lost their lives on that side of the harbour just by being pounded to bits by the waves. Mm. Yeah. Okay, and so bringing it even closer to home than Wellington Harbour, the Mikhail Lermontov. Um, what I'll get you to do, John, actually, just bear with me for a second. Um, I'll get John to read a passage here which sets the scene. Most of you will sort of know the background of Mikhail Lermontov, uh, which sank in the Outer Marlborough Sounds. Um, and anyway, John, you can describe that and just read this passage for us. Sure. So the man I'm referring to here is uh, the f- former harbour master of uh, uh, Picton, Don Jamison, uh, the Marlborough harbour master. Jamison plotted a course to Ship Cove. Two things were remarkable about this. Not the destination, because Ship Cove is a place of considerable natural beauty and equal, uh, and equal interest in New Zealand's maritime history as it was Captain James Cook's favourite anchorage in New Zealand waters. It was more that Jamison directed the Lermontov so close to shore, close enough, a passenger recalled with only a touch of hyperbole, that you felt you could reach out and touch the foliage on the trees hugging the steep hillsides, and also that he was in charge of the ship's course at all. He was not officially piloting the vessel. He was aboard in his private capacity as a guide in the ship's later wanderings. Uh, She was going to Milford and Dusky Sound. When the officers of the watch expressed concern about how close to the shore he was steering her, Jamison assured assured them that he knew what he was doing. Sure enough, the Mikhail Lermontov arrived at Ship Cove around 4.15, where she was met by the pilot boat and the deputy deputy harbourmaster and trainee pilot, Neil, was taken off. By now, it was raining and cold. Captain Vorobyov instructed his chief navigator to set a course of 040, which would carry them well clear to the entrance of the sounds. Cold and wet, he then retired to his cabin, leaving the vessel in the hands of his senior officers and the man with the local knowledge. At 5.21pm, uh, Don Jamison ordered a correction to the chartered course. His new heading carried the Lermontov very close into Cape Jackson and inside Motutara Island, which lies a little under a kilometre offshore. By 5.30pm, she was passing very close into Anakakata Bay and she received a radio call from the Baker family, who operated Cape Jackson Radio, a maritime radio service from the, from the homestead of the remote sheep station nestled in the bay to congratulate them on how magnificent they looked. They steamed a little east of north for a few minutes and then Jamison ordered the helm to be, to be put hard to port in order to line up the gap between Cape Jackson itself and the rearing silhouette of Jackson Head several hundred metres to the north. His decision was questioned by the navigating officer and the second officer, but he shrugged off their concerns. There was, he assured them, plenty of water. For a small vessel, there was. Even for a moderately large vessel, there may well have been enough. Perhaps, in theory, the Lermontov would draw less than, less than the available water. But in practice, because there was white water lying over the reef, in which a hull has less buoyancy, there was no reason a prudent seaman would risk his keel in that area. 
Some passengers later claimed that they saw white water ahead of the vessel. One turned to his wife and remarked that if the Mikhail Lermontov didn't hit the rocks, he'd eat his hat. The hat was safe. At 5.37, the Mikhail Lermontov struck three distinct solid blows and then a trembling. The sound was heard in the Baker family home, and they joked among themselves that the Lermontov must have hit something. Aboard the vessel, it was no joke. Pieces of rock and sand stained the white propeller wash. Captain Vrobyov arrived on the bridge and found Jamison white and shaking. The captain repeatedly asked what had happened, and each time Jamison replied, I don't know. And the, one of the remarkable things about the, the Lermontov uh, is that the man, the most crucial man in this story, Don Jamison, has never spoken publicly about this. Why do you think that is? Maybe he genuinely doesn't know um, what he was thinking at the time. One theory is that uh, he'd had a fall earlier in the, the day. Um, he'd had some alcohol, but uh, everyone was absolutely sure that alcohol was not a factor. It had been a glass of wine or so. But he'd had a fall and he'd hit his head, and uh, he had been a little confused earlier in the evening. Uh, he even had to be reminded he'd had the fall, which is significant. Um, one, that's one possible theory. Another possible theory is that he is just so ashamed, I think, uh, of what he did. Um, it was, a, it, it was a, an impulse and it was a lapse of judgment and he just can't believe he did it. Uh, we've probably all had moments in our lives like that. Uh, the other theory is that he is paid by the Russians to do it. Um, <laughs> and of course he can't speak because we know what happens to people who speak out when Vladimir Putin is not pleased. Yeah. We'll touch on Vladimir Putin in a couple of minutes and his possible involvement. But, I mean, uh, is it, do you accept, I, I mean, you, you say that it was a momentary lapse of ill judgment, but that said, he had earlier that day shown a bit of bravado by taking the Lermontov through Tory Channel, you know, and anyone that's been on the ferry know that it's, even on the little ferries, there's not that much room, is there? And that was probably the biggest ship that's ever gone through there. Yeah, I, I think um, it's still regarded as the largest ship to have gone through Tory Passage. And, mm. and yeah, uh, he, it was a risk because uh, Anyone knows that the ferries, I, I'm pretty sure the, the ferry captains probably hold their breath when they're going through there because any loss of power there and you are in deep trouble. Uh, and in a large vessel like that, even more so, there's no, no room to manoeuvre. And even anchoring, you're going to swing so far, you're going to strike things. So that was a risk. Uh, apparently the Russians were pretty impressed. And uh, I think that might have been fuel to the fire. I think he thought, I can handle this ship and uh, I can handle her in this waterway, which is fabulously deep, um, and, and really put on a show for them. Yeah. Yeah. Does it seem remarkable to you, John, that no one was ever prosecuted, yeah. no individual was prosecuted for sinking a 20,000-tonne cruise ship with the loss of life? You've got to remember that there was a crew member that died in this. Does it seem remarkable that this can have happened and no one's really held to account? It would, Mike, <laughs> except... <laughs> yeah. It was done deliberately. <laughs> it, <laughs> right, do you want to talk about Vladimir Putin? Yes, right. I do, of course. Okay. Yeah. So this is poor old Captain Vrobyov, who I've heard speak on video about uh, the incident. There we go. That's him. That's him. And uh, what a lovely man. And uh, he, it would have been hell to pay. He, he never went anywhere, needless to say, in the maritime service after this because uh, 
this was one of the flasher vessels in the Soviet cruise fleet, and um, uh, he lost it. And uh, you don't come back from things like that too well. This is before the wall fell, that was 1986. Just to his right, the extreme left of the frame for us, it's Putin. <laughs> it, it's not a great image of him, but fortunately we can do better than that, Mike. Oh, There's no sound in this video, but um, can you'll, we see, that you'll see Vladimir there in a um, fairly cheap, nasty brown suit. If you click it again, it should play. There we go. Yeah. There we go. There we go. That's him. And this man here is the navigating officer. So he was the one. Actually, he was the Russian crew member in control of the ship when she um, when she struck. And uh, needless to say, he was found to be the scapegoat. So when you say no one was prosecuted. Yeah, sure. he, he basically paid the full price for yep. it uh, yep. back in... But tell us about yep. Putin, though, because Putin at that time... Why, why you know, the, you might think, oh, this is wild conspiracy theory, but Putin at the time was working for the KGB. He was a... He, where was he based? Um, no one knows. The KGB were pretty shadowy in those days. Yep. Um, but he was a young KGB officer. Everyone knows that. That's a matter of record. Uh, the KGB did have, on all Soviet vessels, there was a KGB officer assigned. So one of the people who was in that entourage there will have been the Lermontov's KGB officer. First thing that uh, poor old Vorobyov said when he came on the Captain. bridge, after saying, what the fuck have you done to my ship, was, get me Vladivostok. So that's the, the headquarters of the Soviet fleet. Uh, maybe that's where Vladimir was. Coincidence? Yeah. I mean, how much weight do you put in it? Do you actually think? That None at him? all. None at all. Okay. I, I, well, I think that could be could well be Vladimir Putin, but I do not believe he was here because they were covering up uh, the fishy loss of their ship. Uh, lots of people say that the Lermontov had lots of aerials that had no maritime function. Uh, I've looked at pictures of her and can't see them. Uh, she was a cruise vessel. Yes, there's KGB officer aboard. That They had Soviet citizens. They need to make sure they didn't defect. Uh, they needed to make sure that anything that was said aboard the vessel to uh, people who weren't Soviet citizens was out of the Soviet Soviet playbook, really. Uh, so, no, I, I don't think he was here to cover up the deliberate sinking of the Lermontov. Okay. Look, we've got a few min minutes for questions. Have people got questions while they're here? There's a lot of fantastic stories that, unfortunately, we haven't been able to cover today. But um, please do ask questions now. Elizabeth. Hi. Um, so we were talking about penguin, the penguin. Right? So yes. I, I love the story of the, the woman. So could you, could you tell yeah, us that? Yeah, the, um, the woman to whom Elizabeth refers, and she's right, it, it's one of the greatest stories. Uh, her name was Ada, Ada Hannum, and uh, she had four children and her husband aboard. They were sailing from Nelson. She had a premonition that things were not going to go well. Uh, when she was having uh, tea with her sister uh, in Picton just before the the, uh, the penguin left. There, uh, there she is. Um, and they said, oh, don't be so bloody stupid. Go off to Wellington. Um, start your new life over there. Her uh, they're going to Rotorua, actually. Her husband had consumption. Uh, so when they struck, uh, she had an absolute conviction that her worst fears had been realised. The ship was going to go down. But she had the equal conviction that she was going to survive. She even grabbed her purse because she thought, I'll be needing that. And she went up on deck with her children and her husband. 
women and children first. So she was put in the boat with her children and the boat uh, was being lowered by two ropes that they call falls. One of them broke. So the ship was inverted, everyone in the sea. Boat came down on top of them. Uh, she struggled her way back onto the, onto the lifeboat, which was miraculously upright, and there was a sailor bailing it. Uh, she still had her youngest uh, babe in arms in her arms. Baby was still alive. Uh, she could hear her other children in the darkness calling out to her, Mama, Mama, Mama. And she said, I'll be there, I'll be there, I'll be there. And she kept saying to the seaman who was in charge of the boat, and others were getting aboard at this point, uh, can we, you know, rescue my children? And they were trying to save the boat from being washed against the, the ship and destroyed. Uh, and so the voices fell silent, and she knew... Sorry, I get emotional telling the story. She knew she'd, she'd lost three of her children. Uh, her husband on deck had seen all this, and he looked down at her and, and said, goodbye, goodbye. And in uh, her own words, she said, I looked at him, and I could not tell him farewell, for that would have destroyed him. So... I don't know what she did, but either way, she probably said, cheer. oh, she said, cheer up, cheer up. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Cheer up, we can have more babies. Um, I don't know. But in any case, so their boat got clear. Not long afterwards, it was capsized because the worst way to try to get ashore in a storm in those days was in one of the lifeboats. Uh, they were topsy-turvy and they were open. So she was under the lifeboat with her baby, still alive. Um, she put her baby on the thwart, which is the seat that runs across the, the lifeboat, and lashed, him, lashed her there uh, and clung on. And meanwhile, there was someone trying to save himself by grabbing onto her foot deeply underwater. So she reached down, felt this person's hair, and pulled them up. And it was a young man named... Um, Ellis Matthews. Uh, Alice Matthews. I keep saying William Matthews. Ellis Matthews. Uh, and so he came up into the space under the lifeboat with... Ada and her baby, the only people there, they could hear someone on top. Uh, and he said, we're going to die, we're going to die. He said, no, stick with me, I'm going to live. And uh, that's how they went ashore. The man on top, some some point, was washed off or slipped off and perished. Uh, at some point, she felt her baby's face and felt the jaw clenched and the baby was cold. She knew that was it uh, for her children. Um, so she saved the 17-year-old uh, who she had with her, that became basically her mission. Uh, washed ashore, she was trapped under the lifeboat uh, and she was trying to tunnel out, but the waves kept um, uh, covering up the hole. Eventually, some men heard her, opened it up, and she said, where are my children? Where's my husband? Walked along the beach, couldn't find them, knew the worst must have happened. Um, and so, yeah, the, another moving line uh, as she was being led up to the farmhouse, uh, she said, oh, do please talk to me for if I, if I, if I remember the things I have seen, uh, I shall go to pieces, or words to that effect. And yeah, terrible the, story. The, yeah, but a couple of remarkable things. The 17-year-old boy, Ellis Matthews, who she saved, ended up um, coming to live here in Marlborough and living out at Spring Creek, uh, but evidently never spoke, never wanted to speak about what had happened and how his life had been saved. But the other thing was that Ada Hannams, she was three months pregnant at the time, and she had the boy, and what do you think his vocation in life was? He went to sea. Yeah, yeah so, I, lo I lost track of him as second officer aboard a Union steamship company vessel, same line as well as... Uh, yeah. yeah. Any other questions 
while we're here. Look, um, one last thing that I'd like to just touch on, John. We think now that with technology, GPS, satnav, that we can, that shipwrecks are a thing of the past. I guess the Costa Concordia shows that uh, acts of ill judgment and hubris means that we're still going to have them. Is that fair to say? It's so fair to say. And, and there are two reasons. We rely on technology too much. And you see all of the collisions that the US Navy tends to have in, the, uh, in Asian waters uh, with fishing vessels, where there are millions of them, they rely on their technology. They don't have someone actually looking out of the bridge. They're staring at radar screens. And there's so much clutter. Uh, so they're regularly running down fishing vessels there with their, their great big uh, naval vessels. Uh, that's one thing. We saw the Rena off the Tauranga yeah. coast, had all the bells and whistles and smacked into a very well-known reef uh, and perched there for a long time. Uh, technology is a friend and it's a foe because if we rely on it, uh, we, we're just as likely to run ourselves into trouble because of it. And then, of course... Uh, Seafaring has become one of the marginal industries in the world. Uh, you buy your ship off someone else who's run it into the, to the well beyond its economic life. Uh, you flag it in some foreign vessel who don't care at uh, some foreign port, doesn't have employment laws or even safety at sea laws. Uh, you stock it with people who, whose lives are so miserable that even the chance to have a better life on, on a, a seaman's pittance uh, is, is worth a crack, and then you roll the dice and send it to sea with your cargo and, and hope it all turns out well. And, of course, most of the worst stories we get at the moment are from people smuggling it, mm. episodes where ships not designed for carrying vast numbers of people just are crowded with desperate people and sail off to disaster because, yeah, desperation makes us lose our wits. Yeah. Look, thanks so much, John, for speaking with us about the, your upcoming book. It's a real privilege to have a sneak preview of it. Um, as the person that's uh, lucky enough to have the only kind of paper copy of it, it is full of incredible stories. I would urge you to kind of uh, look it out when it comes out in about September, October. Um, worst things happen at sea. Thank you very much, everyone, for coming along today. Wonderful audience. And... Can you join me in, in thanking John? He'll be out in the, uh, the foyer signing copies if anyone wants to get his other book that is available, Singing the Trail. But thanks uh, to John for coming and being with us at the festival and this session in particular. Thank you. John McChrystal speaking to Mike White at the 2021 Marlborough Book Festival. A big thanks to all the writers that have supported the festival, as well as the audiences that attended in person or listened online. If you'd like to learn more about this year's event, head over to marlboroughbookfest.co.nz. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe and tell a friend. Thanks for listening.